Brad Douglas, thank you so much for being with me on Hemp Barons today. Thank you so much, Joy. It's a pleasure to be here. It's such a treat to have really one of our nation's foremost experts, not only on all things analytical as it relates to cannabis terpenes, to cannabinoids, uh, but also specifically as it relates to Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol or Delta-8 THC, which is an emerging, fascinating, and very interesting topic, um, bringing about a lot of quick and swift reaction from regulators and lawmakers. But let's first talk about uh, how you came to this expertise and a little bit about the workshop and work being WERC. And I bet that you'll be able to explain to us uh, how that came to be. First of all, how did you come to cannabis? How did I come to cannabis? Well, I got involved with chemistry from an early age, and I got to chemistry because I was fascinated with how we develop medicines from botanicals, plants, anything in our natural world. So it took some years to come to cannabis as our movement and industry evolved. But in the meantime, I had worked in the pharmaceutical industry, the dietary supplement industry, all areas that have relations to cannabis, developing medicines, developing medicines from plants. Uh, but it's been about 10 years now since I've been involved with cannabis for, I, I'd call it double time. So I eat it, I breathe it, I sleep cannabis. <laughs> That's why I'm so happy. <laughs> we are just cut from the same cloth on on so many levels and how did the workshop come to be right here in uh western washington well the workshop started in southern california it was one of the first medical cannabis testing labs in california and it really started because a good friend of mine dr jeff raber was a medical cannabis patient and also an organic chemist and he was surprised that medical cannabis at the time was not tested in any shape or form. So he took it upon himself to begin the workshop and to begin testing cannabis at that point in time. So that was about 10 years ago now. Um, and from there, the workshop not only continued testing cannabis, but got involved with helping others produce cannabis products helping build facilities that grow and produce cannabis and helping with all a number of other things that are related to cannabis. And when was the decision to move into up the coast from California? Well, I needed to move out of California myself. So I moved a bit ahead of time. But as soon as Initiative 502 was passed in 2012 by the voters in Washington, we were prepared to start a workshop north, a testing lab in Washington state. So it started pretty much the day after, or perhaps the day before the initiative itself was passed. We, we had some involvement in, in helping with the initiative. So we were, we were prepared. Prepared to, to launch after I-502. And uh, I think my first exposure to the great work of the workshop, and I'd heard about it from my various, you know, circles here in uh, in Washington. We have, we're very blessed to have, obviously, a very close-knit cannabis community. Um uh, but we did the Terpestival for the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy. Uh, Dr. Dominic Corva is just a very dear friend, and I, I have so much admiration and respect for the incredibly important work that he does, and it's just such an honor to support him um, as president of the board of CASP. But we did that first Terpestival that the workshop had such an important role in, Terpestival being the historical first cannabis competition on the planet that related specifically and exclusively to terpenes and terpene profiles of the plant and absolutely nothing to do with cannabinoids of the plant. Uh, and uh, thank you for being such uh, an important part of that, uh, of that historical event. Do you recall anything special about it? Absolutely. I remember us doing the terpene testing for the samples and those that were, were judged in you know other ways. And it was just at that time very fascinating for us to see and do the testing on some of the samples that were 
were submitted for the festival. Um, and I'll give you a little historical footnote because I think everybody will find it fascinating at this point because terpenes are everywhere now. Everybody talks about terpenes, at least within cannabis. Everybody wants to put terpene levels on their packaging, wants to have terpene testing. At the workshop, when we started terpene testing, nobody wanted anything to do with it. They didn't even want terpene testing for free. Said terpenes are cool. They're so fascinating. They bring about sort of the genese qual of different types of cannabis cultivator or cultivars. Why wouldn't you? But it was something that people hadn't heard of. So it really took some time for people to be drawn to it, to develop an interest in actually what terpene content meant and you know what it really stood for or what it could stand for in terms of their their cannabis and their cannabis products. Therein lying the impetus for having the Terpestival, right? Exactly. We were like, exactly. Hey, folks, it is very much time for you to learn about terpenes and stop talking about indica and sativa <laughs> and figure out what's really dialing in uh, this plant with its various benefits. And of course, for our keynote, uh, Dr. Ethan Rousseau, which is, you know, little secret when you live in Seattle you get to hang out with Dr. Russo all the time but when you don't live in Seattle that is a very big deal having Dr. Russo it really Um, is he doesn't come off bash on that often (laughs) (laughs) so true so important and uh then that brings us really to I guess, first of all, as we're talking about history and we move into the subject at hand for this particular um, discussion, which is Delta-8, let's talk about the workshop's work on studying Delta-8 before it became the major, major issue that it has become. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're an organization of chemists by training and just by predilection. So Delta-8 is the first isomer you think about when you're looking at cannabis and looking at at delta 9. So as chemists, we see, okay, you just move the double bond over one spot and you have the closest chemical cousin to delta 9 THC. So back in 2017, 2018, we were developing some chemistry that allowed you to to make that conversion um, very in a pure, efficient fashion. And we really had a tough time developing any interest in it. At the time, people were not particularly interested in Delta-8. It was more expensive than Delta-9. It was uh, a, had a less potent effect than Delta-9. So it was more of a curiosity than anything else at the time. Fast forward to now. <laughs> Things have changed and in, and let's talk about what has changed. What has changed is, of course, the 2018 Farm Bill was signed into law, became effective January 1 of 2019. Hemp and all of its derivatives and extracts and cannabinoids and isomers and salts of isomers, etc., became removed from the Controlled Substances Act, a glorious, incredible day for all of cannabis that hemp then begins to take its rightful place in the broad light of day among all of America's other legal agricultural commodities and all of the parts of the plant and everything that it has to offer. Um, As is often the case with law and regulation and science and the free market is laws are passed and then more science is discovered and the free market starts to do its thing and then we have to adjust a little bit. So obviously when when the federal government gloriously liberated uh, hemp and all of its parts and isomers from the shackles of the Controlled Substances Act, uh, that started farmers growing. And then of course we had the, and still have, I mean, my goodness, our endocannabinoid systems are not going anywhere. There's going to be more and more people taking these incredible extracts uh, for a very long time forever. Um, But the reality is that we grew a lot of extract for CBD, for cannabidiol. And uh, that 
there was a massive, massive overproduction. I mean, the poor farmers just, we have still incredible amounts of biomass, 55 gallon drums of hemp extract left over from the 2018 harvest that are still sitting around in warehouses. And then in 2019, still another massive overproduction. We have come to very well realize that it takes, you know, a little bit of hemp to make a lot of distillate, a lot of extract. Uh, and so we have all of this CBD sitting around, so to speak, as well as degrading biomass sitting around that was grown specifically for the hemp extract uh, markets. And as it was discovered, one can convert through isomerization cannabidiol to delta-8 THC, which can have an intoxicating effect. I'm going to now let you take it from here on uh, on what that sort of what that process is when it when it is done in a healthy way and what the dangers are. When we talk about isomerization, I, I think actually maybe that's the best place for us to start. Uh, Dr. Brad Douglas is. Can you explain isomerization to the audience? I certainly can, but maybe we could talk. And I think this adds a little bit of color to it to highlight Great. what you already said, the Great. economics of CBD. So we take a little bit of a walk down memory lane. We can talk about what the price per kilo of a full spectrum CBD hemp extract or CBD isolate was. It is only now two years, if that, removed from $10,000 a kilo CBD isolate pricing. To today, you can easily get a kilo of CBD, high quality CBD isolate for $500. So you talk about one twentieth the price. And that's important because that is what makes it so inexpensive to produce Delta-8 THC. Now, if you're using a starting material that's $10,000 a kilo, you're producing Delta-8 that costs way more than a Delta-9 distillate costs on the regulated cannabis markets today. And if you're producing it from a $500 kilo feedstock, then all of a sudden you have a competitive product, maybe not quite the same activity, but something that does have psychotropic effects for one-fifth the cost or less. So that's, I believe, it wasn't the, the chemistry that miraculously changed overnight because there's patents going back two decades that show you how to convert CBD into Delta-8 and even Delta-9 THC. It's this economic situation, the surplus of, of CBD and hemp biomass that, that you mentioned, Joy. And that, that put us in this place in time, I'd say. So now I can take up the, your other question if, if you like. Um, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> absolutely. So the best way to think about isomers in terms of chemistry for, for the layman is as chemical cousins. So Delta-9 and Delta-8 are the closest chemical cousins. They look very similar to each other. We have a, a double bond that's moved over. And when you're structurally the same, chemically the same, you tend to have similar physiological or pharmacological activity. And we find that with Delta-8 and Delta-9 THC have similar activity at CB1 and CB2 receptors. They're sort of flip-flop. So Delta-8 a, has a bit more activity at CB2 receptors and a bit less at CB1 compared to Delta-9 THC. But for all intents and purposes, they're pushing the same buttons in our endocannabinoid system, if you will. Another part of isomerization and isomers is stereoisomers. So it, talked about Delta-9 and Delta-8, which are chemical cousins in the sense that they have bonds that are one position over. You also have what's called stereoisomers. And the best way to think of stereoisomers is a right hand and a left hand. They look the same, but you can't superimpose them. And that can also lead to differing activity. Sometimes it has no importance in the body, and sometimes it can have very, very different effects in the body. And I think Chris Hudala of Proverde Labs, who has been on the show, and I know who is a, a wonderful colleague of yours and, and of mine, and just a tremendous, important voice in these emerging industries, 
he he doesn't liken delta eight to uh, thalidomide, but he discusses as a point of illustration uh, the potential public harm using the thalidomide example of the 1950s. Essentially, there were two isomers. Uh, and you'll, by the way, if I get ahead of my skis here, you'll clean up anything that I might need cleaned up after my my parroting of his analogy. Uh, two isomers of thalidomide. Uh, one that was good for morning sickness uh, and one that caused would cause problems. And so the when the scientists discovered these two isomers, they said, hey, well, we'll, we'll throw away the one that causes, you know, harm, biological harm, but we'll keep the one that helps with morning sickness. And so they started to give it to pregnant women without understanding or realizing that in a, the biological environment of the human body, the isomer that was good, they thought was good for morning sickness started to transform and wanted to become the other isomer. And then we had these horrible, horrible defects, birth defects and, and disfiguration and, and uh, deformations of fetuses and children, and my goodness, if people were to Google thalidomide photos, you know, the things that they would see. And so uh, Chris Udala is really ringing the alarm bells right now um, of the public harm, as potential public harm aspects of Delta-8 a, for that reason, it's not been studied, even in rodents, really. Um, and my understanding is that Dr. Mishulam, some decades ago, actually did do some studying, but not in the context that we see this today. Um, and so he, he's sounding the alarm for, for that reason, but and for also the reason of when we talk about isomerization or the various techniques of doing these conversions from CBD to Delta-8 THC, there can be a whole lot of public public harm, residual solvents, other things that occur. Could you first speak to us about the, the processes itself and the potential public harm danger with the processes? And then maybe we could get into um, some of the other concerns. Absolutely. And I, I would like to say a little bit more about thalidomide because it was such a, it is such a cautionary tale today, how one stereoisomer can have such harmful effects when another can have therapeutic effects. That's particularly important in the United States because it was used as a sort of a shining example of FDA's powers. And it's certainly used as a teaching moment within FDA because at the time, thalidomide was approved in Europe and the thalidomide tragedy was much worse in Europe because it was given to many more women with morning sickness. Where in the US, the approval was sitting on somebody's desk and really wasn't rushed into the market. And because of that, a, a number of birth defects were, were, were saved or were spared in the U.S. So that's certainly used as both a teaching moment within FDA today, speaking to stereoisomers and why you may not want to rush drug approvals, um, but also a cautionary tale for us. Uh, but I do also want to point out that there are many other substances that do have stereoisomers, right hand and left hand that have no difference in activity. So thalidomide is certainly the worst case. And that's really what, how we should be thinking about the unknown um, is the worst case. Hope for the best, plan for the worst. And I think that is particularly what Dr. Hudala is speaking to. And some of us that are speaking about this topic behind the scenes is what do we know about not only the byproducts that are being produced with different methods of making Delta-8 from CBD. But what do we know or don't know about the other stereoisomers of Delta-8 THC? And the answer is not much. So to, to give you one example, you can purchase as an analytical standard, right? You know, I used to do analytical, analytical testing for cannabis. You can purchase two of the four stereoisomers of Delta-9 THC to actually test. So you can see them on your HPLC or GC. You can buy one for Delta-8. That means there's two others for Delta-9 and three others for Delta-8 that you can't even get a standard for to know what you're looking for. Um, and that's important because if you can't, if you don't know what you're looking for, that's a lot harder to determine if it's 
it, it's there in your sample, in your reaction mixture, if you're producing Delta-8 THC. And if you can't find out whether it's there, you can't necessarily do any testing on it. And that's unfortunately the situation we're in. We, we don't know if different processes are going to lead to different production of these stereoisomers at all, in what quantities. And the kicker is if they're going to have some harmful effects, perhaps like thalidomide or no harmful effects at all, or perhaps other beneficial effects. We just don't know. And I I think also one foundational piece as we move forward is is, uh, just to inform folks that in terms of naturally occurring Delta-8, we're talking all about isomerization. Why are we talking about isomerization? Because in terms of naturally occurring Delta-8 that you would extract – it, it exists only in very infinitesimal amounts in real life from from the harvested plant, is is my understanding, and we it's not available in commercial amounts. You can't uh, the way that we extract um, these various cannabinoids, we wouldn't be able to do that with delta eight because it simply does not express itself in commercially viable quantities, and therefore the only way to get it uh, in commercially viable quantities quantities is to convert it. True statement there or anything that should be massaged? Exactly right. So, and there are folks who not, most of the folks out there are not highly credentialed and degreed like you are and some of our other nation's leading uh, chemists or or analytical scientists, as it were. Um, They are learning about how to go for Delta-8 online and in books and from their buddies and friends. And those processes are taking place in garages, in basements, um, uh, kitchen tables, as it were. And that's where, you know, the and, and on top of the fact, since we don't have a regulatory framework, um, so to speak, and the reason why I, I say so to speak is because, of course, from our hemp perspective, if you are manufacturing a cosmetic, an over-the-counter drug, whether it's topical or not, a dietary supplement or a food or a beverage or a drug, you are governed by the code of federal regulations that govern those things. You are held to every possible standard of the code of federal regulations for good manufacturing practices, which include, of course, manufacturing, distributing, holding, testing, labeling, all of those things. And so for some reason, folks have come up with the idea, whether it's uh, convenient to have this idea or whether you're just taking advantage of it, that since there isn't a specific regulatory framework for cannabidiol or a specific regulatory framework for hemp extract, that means you somehow get a get out of the code of federal regulations free card and you don't get you don't have to pay attention to any of them. Of course, that nothing could be farther from the truth. Um, and so let's let's talk for a minute about uh, and so I say even some of the good actors who um, who are, are using uh the best manufacturing practices that they that they possibly can um, are are still some of them marketing these products of intox as intoxicating, which is problematic for hemp, which is problematic for us trying to get any type of regulatory decisions from the FDA just on CBD alone. Um, and and also the actors out there who actually do have the funding to mass produce things um, are taking advantage of the fact, using as an excuse this ignorance that they don't actually have to follow any type of GMP or good manufacturing practices. So all that is to say, could you give us a couple of examples of things that you have seen out there on ways uh, that isomerization has taken place Um uh, and in an, in a harmful way, where harmful uh, residual aspects or even heavy metals or other things might still be left in the product. Yeah, absolutely. And we can start where you started with, with GMPs, good manufacturing practices. They are in place for a reason. When you follow good manu- manufacturing practices, you have a very buttoned up procedure for doing chemistry, you're seeking to avoid any deviations or changes in your chemistry, in your manufacturing process. And when you're talking about chemistry, small changes can make mean big differences 
right? And I think that's what credentialed chemists, regulators of areas of chemistry, like pharmaceutical production, look and see recipes that are being shared online. And you see, okay, even for those that are particularly detailed, and there are some very detailed procedures out there, one small change can change a whole bunch of things. And it, to a non-chemist, that change might seem minor, right? Maybe I swap in some acetic acid for some hydrochloric acid, or I change the temperature by 10 degrees. That can have a significant effect on what other byproducts you're producing or some of the other parts of your reaction mixture. Um, so I think that's also a good jumping off point for what you then have in your finished product, right? So as a, as a chemist that has a, say a drug master file, I know exactly what can't be in there, what I don't want in there, what some of the potentially harmful byproducts are, as you mentioned, heavy metals, maybe residual solvents. I want them to be below a certain residual level without standards like that. That's left up to the chemist or the cook who's doing that, that reaction. So you could have people that aren't even looking for heavy metals. And that's certainly happening a fair amount in, in the hemp world. You could have residual solvents that are way above ICH levels that have been established for different therapeutic products. And I think stereoisomers aside, I think that's the, the basic safety and standards level that get people concerned that, okay, we have these areas of testing and quality control, as you mentioned, Joy, in other areas. These are these are basic things that we want to follow for things that humans and people are consuming, right? So that's that's step one. That's safety, human safety 101. Be doing this sort of quality control testing. Just a side, and I and I can't help but just insert there that we've got very stringent code of federal regulations for things that go into the mouths of animals. To say nothing of what goes into the mouths of a human, but I digress. Continue, doctor. And really, that's what I'd say is that, as you mentioned, just because these regulations aren't strictly applicable to hemp or cannabis at this time. doesn't mean they're not valuable to be imparted upon cannabis at this point. And they serve a very important purpose. And that purpose is the safety of the people that are consuming the, those products at the end of the day. And, and I'll just quickly say they absolutely do because of the federal legal status of hemp, absolutely do apply to hemp. They just haven't figured out what's going on with hemp extract yet. But while we're in this open rulemaking period and we've had judges in federal lawsuits say, listen, your, your claim, we're, we're putting it away for a while because we're in an open rulemaking period. So basically it's, a, it's an unspoken agreement that we understand we have to follow the existing laws as they are, but there aren't specific laws specific to extra things that might have to do with THC. And, and in fact, and, I, and I'm sorry for this tangent, we'll go right back to where, where you were speaking of. The reality is the Code of Federal Regulations as they exist today are absolutely, there's going to be a, probably just a few tweaks, right? The tweaks will be, now you're going to have to test for this, that, and the other thing. We hadn't Come, that wasn't part of the rubric before cannabis in any form came along. And and there may be a warning or two, right, that becomes mandated, uh, just like there are certain specially mandated warnings for other types of dietary supplements or food additives. And then lastly, and that's a whole nother show, is I pretty much see if I had a crystal ball that they will also take isolate away <laughs> um, and keep isolate for drugs. Because if you are going into the mouth of a human being in the United United States, you can be one of three things. There are three swim lanes. You can be a food, which includes beverages. You can be a dietary supplement, or you can be a drug. Those are the three things that you can do. And I, I think the only other tweak would be that they'll say an isolate is specific to drugs. That may happen as well. But but in any event, just impressing upon folks uh, that absolutely hemp is held to the Code of Federal Regulations and just is going to have to do its absolute best following those Code of Federal Regulations while also including an ingredient that is still in an open rulemaking period. 
boom, and thank you for your patience as I oh, had man. to include that. I'm glad you brought up dietary supplements because I think it's an instructive tale, the path that dietary supplements took to being more regulated and having their own set of GMPs. And it's, I think, useful for us, cannabis industry insiders, cannabis industry people, to look at what the dietary supplement industry and process went through. And those regulations came about because there was self-imposed standards developed by the industry. The industry said, look, this is coming. We know it is, or this is what we expect to happen two years, 10 years out. Let's work on this now. Let's hold each other to the standards that we want to see, that we expect to see, and create that safe, healthy industry that we want for everybody. And I think we're at that point now. You mentioned it, we're just in the middle of it. The sort of sausage is being made, if you excuse the metaphor. But we have a lot of responsibility to say, look, these other paradigms make sense. We know this is coming. Let's put these standards in place and let's get in line now. Let's not just wait until you know, we're, our feet are held to the fire. Let's do it now. In fact, the very folks who brought about the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994, DSHEA, as we call it in the dietary supplement uh, world, are the very same. And by the way, that was originally called the Health Freedom Act, and it morphed into the Dietary Supplement Health Good and history. Education Act. Such fascinating stuff. Um, the very folks that helped bring forward DSHEA are the very folks I also am so pleased to sit on the board of directors for the U.S. Hemp Roundtable, which to me is really the nation's foremost leading advocacy organization for uh, the hemp industries. And um, as well as I sit on the technical committee and am the former vice president of the U.S. Hemp Authority, which was seed funded. Uh, it's a completely separate organization now, but it was seed funded by the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. And it is a GMP compliance is literally the baseline of getting a U.S. Hemp th Authority certification, which is done as all viable, valid certifications programs are by an independent third-party auditor, which in our case, the USM authorities case, is Food Chain ID, a very global, highly respected, independent third-party verifier. But where, who, do, how do we work on uh, the US Hemp Authority certification program? The standard is already in its 3.0 third version is with the United Natural Products Association, the American Herbal Products Association. We also work very closely with the Council for Responsible Nutrition. I mean, the big four um, of those dietary supplement companies. And it's been already some number of years now. And of course, APA, the American Herbal Products Association has had their cannabis committee for 10 years now. So always that that forward thinking and that um, moving forward to make sure that we are stewarding responsibly uh, these emerging industries and preparing for when those regulations finally come down. Absolutely, which I'm a part of the APA Cannabis Committee, and there's a great deal of institutional knowledge there that stems for botanicals and dietary supplements that is now being applied, as you mentioned, along with all the number of other industry groups towards cannabis and, and hemp. Yes, yes. And back to Delta 8. <laughs> back to Delta 8, our favorite topic. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I think it was going to get to a, a, perhaps a way that we could cut through a lot of the debate and controversy at this point in time, which that controversy stems from the Farm Bill which says, as you mentioned, Joy, that all derivatives of hemp are legal and free and permitted under the Farm Bill. That phrase or term, hemp derived, is really what has caused all the consternation. You have many people that say, well, if it's hemp derived and anything I can make from it, chemistry or otherwise, is included. That's hemp derived. And you have others that say, well, hemp derived wasn't intended to mean that you can do chemistry on it. And it certainly wasn't intended to mean that you could take hemp, which is non-psychotropic, and create a psychotropic substance out of it. My thinking is that this is going to be resolved at some point. It's going to be one way or another. It probably doesn't matter our opinions at this point, which way it'll go. But what we can do as industry 
is to focus on how to use and to produce Delta-8 in a safe manner. So whether it's permitted as a hemp ingredient, whether it's only sold in dispensaries or regulated THC markets or wherever, that we have done the hard work to say, this is what's important for an ingredient standard for Delta-8 THC. What don't we want in there? What do we want to avoid? And then it, then we're, we're, we're set. We're ready to go. That's the end goal. We want to keep consumers and medical patients safe. So why don't we focus on that and everything else will, will resolve itself in time. And I, I absolutely hold the same number of amount of confidence that you do. And I, I'm watching it kind of already unfold. And it's a fascinating sort of um, contradiction or dichotomy of how Washington state is reacting to this Delta eight emerging situation um, as opposed to other states. I think we're already up to 18 now. Michigan just yesterday signed into law um, some legislation that regulates uh, Delta-8. Um, but I'll, I'll say that when we talk about, and I don't think we've addressed it yet here, what's happening is, you know, the hemp industry uh, is started out, we're oilseed and fiber, right? 30 years ago, I got into hemp for the environmental and economic aspects of this plant and that it is, you know, really the trillion dollar industries for hemp don't actually have anything at all to do with cannabinoids. That's billion dollar in hey, Billions are a lot of money, but the trillions, of course, are going to be in these industrial aspects, paper, textiles, building materials, biocomposites, industrial sealants and coatings, nanotechnology, all of these things things, uh, fuel, energy, storage, pellets. Um, so, and, and we have carefully, after all of those decades, you know, with the promise of hemp and the, and toting its industrial uses and its healthy, non-intoxicating uses, we've managed to do what we've done, which is liberate it from the shackles of the Controlled Substances Act. And right on the heels of it now, hemp is being used to create intoxicating products uh and and i i recently was was at presenting for the european industrial hemp association and somebody wrote in the chat box um there is no definition for intoxication someone who's really pro delta eight you know and the reality is really the world health organization's expert committee on drug dependence most definitely does have a definition for intoxication um so not only are these products being marketed as intoxicating they are oftentimes being marketed as intoxicating in packaging that is attractive to children, uh, in in venues and, and being available in the stream of commerce without any concern or regard for how old the consumer is and age restriction. And so um, in addition to the fact that we've got, again, the FDA uh, dragging its heels now for several years, and we're grateful, we understand how important the FDA's role is in assuring that we're products that are, are safe for people are being put out into the market. It. And I'll, I will try not to wear my, and it's that same FDA that put Oxycontin out into the market, the biggest crime of the century. So, but in any event, we appreciate that role. Um, but we need them to be able to act. If they have to do it one cannabinoid at a time, you know, it's going to make me crazy, but I, we're begging at minimum for CBD at this point. And the reality is that in, again, for hemp, we're, Delta-8 is, is, is a drug. It, it seems to me to be something that more meets the definition of a drug unless it's being um, marketed in ways that A, don't cause intoxication, B, do not market its intoxicating uh, effect. But even then, we come into problems because the FDA, for the definition of a dietary supplement, does not consider, and there are all kinds of opinions on this on this. Uh, position, this guidance position that the FDA has, does not consider synthetic botanical constituents, which they call synbots, uh, to meet the definition of a dietary supplement. Combined with an intoxicating potential or being marketed as intoxicating is very problematic um, for, for hemp and everything that for decades we have been trying to do um, to liberate this plant and to deliver on its promise which is 
a non-intoxicating promise. Intoxicating products, um, to me, belong in dispensaries or, or otherwise with age restriction, but continue. Yeah, and I would certainly agree. And I, I, I appreciate you bringing up the, the difference how FDA thinks about synthetic botanical ingredients because there's a whole sordid history there involvement of the pharmaceutical industry and that's in stark contrast to synthetic ingredients in the food industry so in the food industry there's no differentiation segregation between naturally sourced or synthetic ingredients as long as they're shown to be the same molecule and but in the the dietary supplement industry you have this and it's there's historical context there that you cannot have these synthetic botanical ingredients. And that's important because it's going to it set some precedent or at least it establishes the thinking for the regulator of hemp products, the FDA, and gives you an idea about how they're thinking about what is happening and what should happen with hemp. Indeed. And so what we are seeing, of course, are various states and certainly federal regulators and and lawmakers are quite interested in in what's going on here. Um, But we are seeing various states, of course, moving to as simply for public harm or just on the intoxication, intoxicating potential at all, uh, not to mention the public harm of the fact that none of this has even been studied uh, significantly in human beings at all. And I think we we spoke earlier about that recent chemical engineering news article that came out, you know, and Chris Hudala and some other uh, of your colleagues um, in the scientific world were quoted there. And, and uh, you know, I don't want to be a fear monger. I don't mean to be a fear monger. We just need to speak authentically about the reality of what's going on here so that we can make well-informed decisions as we move forward. And, you know, the quote uh, from Chris in this article is, my concern is that we have no idea what these products are. Uh, consumers are being used as guinea pigs, and to me, that's horrific. So, uh, where that—that's his—that's the, the quote from from Chris. You know, he's really been trying to sound the alarm of of uh, what's been what's been going on here. Now, when speaking about about when you say as long as the molecule is the same in the drug world, and you've done such a great job talking to us about isomers. There are so many, and we we only addressed some of them, right? But positional, optical, stereotype, all, all of that. Um, but what about nature identical and artificial? Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think nature identical came, or is a phrase that came out of the dietary supplement industry itself, and those a way to instill in people that didn't have a chemistry background and understanding that the source of an ingredient of a compound doesn't matter. As long as the chemistry is the same, a molecule is a molecule is a molecule. And that's particularly important in, you know, for this topic we're talking about for Delta A, THC and and other cannabinoids. And you see some new names that are being developed for it too. You have things like Lab-grown. So lab-grown is sort of a synonym for nature identical in the hemp world, and that is generally used by biosynthetic producers of cannabinoids as another way to say, look, just because we're producing this product with yeast instead of a hemp plant or instead of a chemist flask, if it's trans-delta-9-THC, then it's trans-delta-9-THC, irrespective of where it comes from. And Dr. Mishulam, I think that's sort of the new frontier that he's experimenting with and doing research on and, and actually creating some some products and finding some very interesting drug products, uh, but finding some wonderful and interesting results on creating those nature identical uh, uh, cannabinoids. Getting back to the subject of how this is affecting the different markets. For Washington, Washington State, for example, the Washington Liquor and Cannabis Board, I think counterintuitively, I find this very interesting, um, appears to have come to the conclusion that, and, and we loved the fact, believe me, hemp loved the fact that a few years ago, at first it was unwritten and then it became sort of written, that dispensaries, marijuana or adult use and medical cannabis dispensaries in the state, um, 
were allowed to add hemp-derived cannabidiol to their products. Now, in order to be a legal product in a cannabis dispensary in the in the state of Washington, your product has got to include the legal definition of marijuana. So you can make a CBD product, no problem, but it has to have some marijuana in it in order to be sold in a dispensary. And and for everyone with the PC on between cannabis and marijuana, I'm going to go ahead for purposes of just clarity in our conversation to say marijuana and hemp. So it had to have some marijuana in it. Um, so They've also now now that all of this CBD is being converted to THC, that is also being moved into the dispensary market, displacing for intoxicating purposes, displacing the products, including the underlying biomass, the stuff that the farmers grow, the people whose backs on which all of these industries rely, the farmers, um, displacing that biomass and displacing those products for intoxication with hemp-derived products. And so we've got farmers, um, cannabis farmers, adult and medical cannabis farmers in, in Washington going, what is going on here? As well as processors, manufacturers, and, and other things, um, and, and other, you know, parts of the supply chain, I should say, that are being disrupted and displaced by these hemp-derived intoxicating cannabinoids that, to me, very counterintuitively, the Washington Liquor and Cannabis Board has given their stamp of approval to enter into those markets. Can I hear your thoughts on that, whatever they may be? You sure can. I want to pull that thread and it is a long thread to pull, but I yeah. realized I didn't answer the second part of your last question. And I think it's such an important point to your question that it's worth circling back to. And that's artificial in relation to nature identical. So you hear a lot about synthetic, so synthetic cannabinoids or synthetic designer drugs, things like that. Artificial is the more precise term to talk about something that's not found in nature. So if you have an artificial substance, whether it's a cannabinoid, this is something, whether it's produced by a chemist or somewhere else, that you cannot find in hemp, cannabis, or any other plant. It's artificial. So something that's nature identical or lab grown is found in nature, is found in hemp, and it just may be produced in some other way. And I think that's a key distinction that everybody should be aware of, even the non-chemists out there, because it's a key point in thinking about, okay, how should we think about a certain substance, no matter how it's made, whether it falls into this bucket of hemp products or marijuana products, or whether it should be in this other world, say the pharmaceutical world. Um, so thank you for asking that question and allowing me to kind of circle back to that. Um, so glad you did. <laughs> now let's pull that long thread, which is particularly in Washington state, since we both know Washington state well, the genesis of how hemp products or hemp ingredients were permitted into the dispensary, the regulated cannabis system here in Washington state, I-502. And it started with CBD and the original law that was passed, they're referring to, and I'm going to paraphrase, but you were allowed to use CBD, whether it was isolate or full spectrum hemp extract or any hemp extract to supplement your marijuana or your, your cannabis product. So you have to have some marijuana, some THC, and you could use CBD to standardize your, your products. Well, that the language, and again, this might be because you don't have the institutional knowledge of some of these state regulators that really were built for liquor or alcohol in many cases, trying to work through some of this language, that there was some loopholes perhaps or open language that perhaps allowed the idea that not only could you supplement a product with CBD, but if that CBD were to change into other things in the process or you brought in other hemp cannabinoids, that these things were permitted. And I think what you're seeing happen now in Washington State, and this is happening in other places too, Oregon is a great example of this, you're starting to see a delineation between, okay, the intent was that you could use other ingredients from hemp supply or the other botanical, you know, the botanical world in general that were non-intoxicating, 
or non-psychotropic. So you want to bring in CBC. Great. You know, it's going to be found, already is found in dietary supplement products, topical products. You can bring in other botanical ingredients from across the botanical spectrum into cannabis products in Washington state. So we'll allow these cannabinoids in. And I don't think the intention was to ever allow other psychotropic sources of cannabinoids to enter the system. And that's, I think the language is being cleaned up to sort of get to that. And that's what a lot of the discussion and debate is about currently. And I'll even add one more point why that's particularly important. And I think, Again, I'm I'm not a regulator. I'm I'm in the industry. I, I help people make these products. I think regulators feel extra responsibility about this because they don't want to see something that has utility for adults or medical patients being prohibited again. They want to go back to a system of prohibition, and they also understand that if it's not regulated in some context, then it's more open. For to, let's say, run wild, but there's more opportunity for it to be successful or distributed in illicit marketplaces. So there's a lot of responsibility, I think, that's felt outside of the core context of regulated markets. How, how do we protect children from intoxicants that are otherwise perhaps found on gas station store shelves or things like that? So it's, it's such a sticky multi-level issue and that's what makes this such a a fascinating topic and such a impassioned topic for so many i think and and it, similarly when we look at it from the hemp perspective those are where all of the various interests come in right where we're the American government, the federal Congress delivered this plant to the American farmer to revive agriculture, to build rural America, to reinvigorate the American farmer. Um, of course, they had oil, seed, and fiber and CBD in mind when they did that uh, and didn't, you know, we didn't necessarily see this coming. But hey, that's that's life in, in on the earth plane. <laughs> you don't see everything coming as science uh, develops. And so, and of course, we want to also make sure that the folks who have processed plant material that is useful, viable, you know, material that can be put into the stream of commerce in a healthy way, that they're allowed to do that. Um, the, the issue here is because of all of the unknowns and all of the harms, and particularly because of the intoxication potential and component, this leaves all of us in, in quite... Um, really in quite uh, a predicament and a sticky, as you say, predicament. So for example, the U.S. Hemp Authority, you know, will not have put forth a statement that they will not be certifying uh, products, hemp extract products that are being marketed uh, for intoxication. U.S. Hemp Roundtable came out with a public statement that said that they uh, will not condone their members marketing these products as intoxicating. Um, and, and of course, it, it seems to me that there is an unfair playing field here. Um, it seems to me as well from being just the tremendous amount of advocacy work I do. And it's, oh, it's always fine for the quarter, the, the Monday morning quarterbacks or the folks that really have no sophisticated command of, of the complexity of issues that are being debated and considered when rulemaking is occurring and when, and when lawmaking is occurring and they, they just want to complain at the end. But for those of us and, and, you obviously included, uh, that are literally have our sleeves rolled up and are dealing with that minutia and are dealing with the, the crossing of the, of the, uh, T's and the, and the dotting of the I's, um, you know, really recognize that uh, there are some concessions that need to be made. There are some protections that need to be made. And it just seems to me that intoxicating products, you know, belong in a adult use or medical cannabis market. And the reality is that maybe back in the 1930s, who were the big proponents against hemp leading up to the Marijuana Tax Act, right? It was we the newfangled synthetic uh, 
petroleum-based synthetic polymers, exactly, coming up for these plastics and nylons, the, the wood pulp uh, paper-making process. The cotton gin, of course, had been invented at the end of the 19th century, which, which spurred and which was a patent, which then spurred these fiber wars. So they were really industrial um, antagonists there move forward now 80 years and really other than big pharma it's it's ourselves adult use and medical cannabis and hemp that are now starting to butt heads in the halls of the legislatures whether they're state or federal and at, at the rulemaking level because of these various interests and i just see Delta eight and and I I always want to be a bridge for that. I want you know I feel like once we get past this hysterical prohibition into more data and science driven uh, law and regulation, we're not going to be so different as we are right now. But right now, coming on the heels of hysteric prohibition, you know, there's that clear delineation and obviously very different sets of law and regulation. But it seems to me that it is unfair uh, for uh, farmers of hemp who do not have to be so highly regulated to intentionally with intent uh, to grow a plant that would then be used for its intoxicating purposes when uh, you know adult and medical cannabis farmers are under such very strict licensing and, and laws and regulation to do what they do. And the only thing that they can do with the biomass that they grow is to be sold through the dispensary market and they can't even cross state lines. And so um, in addition to the fact that really we want true economic stability for the farmer then grow a crop that you can achieve that with so you know uh and yes it's true that no one's going to make a million dollars right now growing fiber and oilseed hemp in the united states because the infrastructure to process that uh hemp and those plant parts hasn't been developed yet one foot in front of the other though and those processes are coming up so i think what i say is stand down um particularly this season i mean it's our planting has already has already ended but looking at variety trials for for oilseed and fiber varieties of hemp because when that infrastructure does come to a town near you you want to be ready and knowing what is going to grow in your soil um and you know if you want to service the hemp extract market the non-intoxicating hemp extract market to do so very carefully and, and of course in hemp and really with all forms of agriculture we don't really want farmers growing a crop for which they don't already have a contract and an end manufacturer in place so i think that's sort of the other really interesting thing how Happening right now here is we already were starting to butt heads in a really problematic way. And I say that because marijuana, adult use and medical cannabis is way better funded than hemp. I mean, we're still bootstrapping it like crazy. And meanwhile, there's lots of money. And so it does not advantage us uh, to continue to infringe um, on that market, particularly when all of these other harms, which is the bulk of the concern, all of these other harms exists. So I, I look forward to, you know, finding resolutions here that, that meet everybody's needs uh, and that, but that most importantly address these public harm concerns uh, that you have so very well helped us understand today. <laughs> well, I appreciate your viewpoint on how we should come together as hemp and marijuana, cannabis, THC, cannabis, however you term it, because we have a higher cause, right? The, the plant has so much to give and there's so much promise there for so many different areas of human society and technology that it's a shame that we, we are butting heads at this stage. And you have something like Delta 8 THC, which I categorize as a bit of an existential threat to the regulated cannabis market. It is in some ways an end around of your tax and tested cannabis market. Um, and I think that that's, that's too bad if that would lead to whatever the case, you'd have some some harmful occurrence, some people get, get sick or the just the public gets fed up with the sort of kind of bickering and not be able to figure things out and that gives lens a black eye or you know demoralizes people when it comes to cannabis and 
as you mentioned, there's so much more there. They don't necessarily have to fight over one compound. Really, the end goal is to have it be available to consumers and medical cannabis patients and not to lose it, not to harm people such that compounds found in the cannabis plant aren't permitted in cannabis products anywhere. Hemp, THC containing, and they're only permitted you know, that you could get from your pharmacy or from a doctor. That would be a losing situation for everybody, I think. And I think that's what we should strive to avoid. Absolutely. And, you know, cannabis is here in all of its forms to bring people together, to bring industry together, uh, to be the great synthesizer. And, uh, and so I will continue, as I know you will, to keep those sleeves rolled up and cooperate and work together to deliver really on the promise of, of cannabis in, in all of its forms and, and everything that it can do to the planet. I feel so much better uh, knowing that I'm out there with people like you. Dr. Brad Douglas, I can't thank you enough for being with us on Hemp Barons today. Thank you so much, Joy. It was fun. Thank you for all the fantastic work you do, and we'll have you on again. Until next time, brother. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name is Kira Reed. And I'd like to invite you to be inspired by the women who are leading in the cannabis industry. Each week, we will discuss empowerment, leadership, and what it means to be a woman in charge in marijuana, hemp, and CBD. As the founder of the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, I have had the great pleasure to get to know many brilliant and talented women who are CEOs, executives, politicians, advocates, and community leaders that are focused on creating a cannabis economy that is just, fair, and equal. We'll learn how these women make decisions, how they navigate a predominantly male industry, and what they're doing to level the playing field for women. I hope you'll join us.